Hello, bonjour, ni hao, como estas? Welcome to Champagne Strategy. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. So the first episode of this year, 2024, is actually with Colin Lewis. Colin and I have been talking for quite a while and I just found him to be a gentleman and a scholar and we've had some really interesting discussions. He has a really interesting background because he's put his money where his mouth is with his own businesses. He's worked in marketing director roles around many different markets around the world. He's lived in Australia, um, Ireland and has changed throughout his career quite often. I think most importantly, he has a really interesting perspective because of that breadth of experience on a lot of key issues that are being debated right now. Uh, you know, one of which is this brand versus performance divide. He's written for Marketing Week and other notable publications. And yeah, this episode was supposed to be on retail media, but we usually speak much about retail media. But I think the rest of the things that we talk about are really interesting for any marketer, especially some of the advice he has around stepping out of that gulf between how junior or advertising centric marketers think versus what actually goes on at senior levels in director or marketing executive roles within businesses, which is a very different dynamic that I think doesn't get a lot of air for many reasons, but he's got some really interesting take on it and he actually coaches people in those kind of roles as one of his services. So I think what comes out of this episode is really interesting and yeah, sit back. It's not a heavy listen, but there's not many things I don't see eye to eye with Colin on. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Colin Lewis. Cycling, what, what, what's happening? Moderation season's coming up and I'm trying to get fit. And so the only way to kind of force myself to do that is sign up for a couple of 140 kilometer races in March and in uh, May. The problem is I find cycling incredibly boring. So uh, hmm. it's, it's a real trial for me. So last time we chatted, we're in Melbourne actually, uh, which is interesting. You're on one of your tours and had a good chat at a, what was it, like a cafe slash wine bar slash something at a very historic building in Melbourne. It was fun. Part of the uh, Colin Lewis World Tour, I was back in Melbourne where actually when I moved to Australia all those years ago, it is one of my favorite places in the world. And so it was really fantastic to meet face to face and meet, you know, somebody who, you know, you see online and then you meet them in person and they're really lovely. And, you know, it was great. <laughs> Good fun and in fact that trip met after you i met eon pritchard as well who also lives in melbourne and uh, so it's lots of fun one of the benefits of uh, doing what i do is i get meet get to meet nice people around the world who have only met on twitter what's it's different isn't it sometimes people's personalities on um that are forced to to say certain things on social media are very different to the actual person <laughs> other times it's not yeah, um I, I, I'd like to I'm, a complete, I'm a complete asshole in person but very nice on twitter <laughs> Maybe for me, it's a bit a bit of a reverse. I do remember um, having an interesting discussion around, like, obviously you do a lot of work in retail media, right? That's kind of what you're known for now. Well, it's one of the things I do. I actually do three things. I work with startups, do a lot of go-to-market and positioning for startups, which is really a lot of fun. The second thing I do is work with brands and retailers on digital commerce with a specialization in retail media. And the third thing I do is I do a lot of workshops and training. That's kind of partly why I was doing a few world tours over the last year or two, because I get brought in to talk about things like marketing effectiveness, digital commerce, retail media, and so on. And it's because my own background has been as a CMO for marketing director for years and years, for 25 years or so in Australia and in the UK and in to a certain extent in my home territory in Ireland, but also, of course, in Asia as well. And I think that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you because probably the breadth and depth of your experience in this area, you know, provides a, a different I would say a more robust discussion, a bit more richness around certain sort of nuanced areas that we want to talk about today. So if, if someone was saying retail media, what exactly does that mean? Well, I guess we need to explain the context. What's happening at the moment in the world is that you probably heard that cookies have been deprecated. And so that kind of causes a lot of problems around the whole digital advertising network being less reliable, less robust than it was before in terms of its capabilities. Um, secondly, uh, retailers have had, particularly since the pandemic, have been able to develop their e-commerce capabilities. And now in some respects, they're up to 10, 20% of their total revenues. Third aspect of that is that there's been a lot of new technologies. In fact, some of it coming out of Australia, where you are, that enables retailers to monetize their traffic. 
And uh, very quickly around 2020, when I was talking to a few brands and a few retailers around this, I recognized that it isn't actually just some, you know, sort of new thing around what retailers can do as a shakedown for, you know, another version of trade marketing. In fact, it was going to cause a complete change in how people think about marketing and how th people think about how we develop brands and how people think about distribution and actually in terms of how teams are structured and how leadership is structured within marketing teams as well. And I sound like uh, Madame Zelda looking into a crystal ball, but that actually all of this has panned out over the, over the last while. And in many respects, people were looking at the success of what Amazon advertising did. But in fact, that was kind of like a, a, an indicator rather than the key thing that people could do. It was just a kind of a, a, a metaphor of the challenge that was coming down the track. It's interesting um, because one thing I found with some discussions, depending on who you talk to, is this polarization of um, you know brand advertising versus more targeted advertising, sometimes labeled as performance. And I feel sometimes people put this retail media into more of that performance category, maybe because of the legacy thoughts around it being a catalog inside a larger retailer and insertion inside, you know, some sort of like more sales orientated environment closer to the point of sale and perhaps something that's building memories in the background. But what are your thoughts on like categorizing this? Is this a, is this a brand or performance thing? Because my background, I don't really have this sort of divide in my mind. And I suppose I should explain the context for this. Back in the day, um, when I started out my career, I, I literally delivered jams and marmalades. That was my very first job. I had a, a blue van. I had to go and deliver jams and marmalades because the company I worked for had bought this company that guess what? Made jams and marmalades. And they said, Colin, find out what we did. So I've always been the sort of person who was kind of very, if you will, commercial, actually out and about doing stuff with my hands. And then a couple of years later, when I became head of marketing at a business that was all retail, I kind of always saw myself as very much a sort of commercial person who's like about driving revenues, about driving results. You know, so I don't really see any divide between this um, idea of brand and performance marketing, because ultimately, as a marketing director, your sole responsibility is to drive results. That's what you're there for. And you have to pull any levers that you can. And these kind of rules and kind of our pseudo rules, if you will, around brand and performance are essentially making up things for people who are, you know, ultimately, I would go and argue, are looking for status. Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing uh, around status because we, we were talking about this as well. And um, I think that's probably one of the worst things about social media as well as this sort of, I don't know, this competition to create this sort of status game and then post about it and, you know, get awards and ever. But you said here, you can't not have status. It's an unconscious obsession that drives the best and worst of us. I mean, do you have a, an interesting story around this search for status? Because, I mean, I've been trying to write about this as one of the main hallmarks of a brand campaign, which is why they tend to be quite popular at larger companies, especially in the corporate scene, who may be a, le a bit less bottom line orientated. Um, it tends to go there very quickly. Do you have any interesting examples? Or? Uh, you know, let he is without sin cast for a stone. I've spent a lot on what, what would be, is called the trade brand campaigns, and you know, probably maybe 50 million over my career on TV across numerous markets um, and spent, I think at one stage, I think I spent 800 grand in two weeks on production for one particular TV campaign. You know, run some of the most famous brands, in, particularly in the UK, to a certain extent in Ireland and, and even Australia. So I'm kind of like agnostic on the whole thing, though, because the key thing is like, are we here to drive results? And, uh, you know, we, we, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but the more senior you get in your career, that essentially is the only thing that matters. So personally, I don't see, uh, as I said earlier, between kind of brand and performance, kind of, I don't really see the world like that. However, what I do see is a lot of talk on social media around these things and i also see a lot of things around where if somebody says well it's not kind of really like that once in a row but there's a lot of shutting down of those particular arguments and i would argue that many of these particular things are around what i call status because uh, as you touched on there you cannot not have status we are all playing status games being on a podcast like this is is essentially playing a status game and you know what 
that's okay. I don't have a problem with that whatsoever because that's actually how we move on in the world. That's how we structure our lives. Everything is a status game and, and that's okay. However, when it doesn't become okay is when we actually go and claim status and then say that's actually the best way to do things. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded of my uh, conversation with a, a guy I do a lot of work with, and he's uh, the ex-CEO of one of the largest um, largest agencies in the UK, or in fact, one of the largest agencies in the world, but he was a chief exec in the UK. And he, he, he would say, now he's saying it a tad more colloquially than what I'm about to say, but he said, you know, within the building at the top with the best offices, with the coolest layout and the best haircuts and, you know, would be the guys working in the creative department and then maybe the, sta the, the strategy guys below them. And then somewhere in there was maybe the planning folks. And the, but in the basement, in the windowless, airless rooms was the guys running AdWords. And may maybe just slightly above them in the kind of status game was the direct mail folks. But on that, that was it. And that kind of thing just kind of struck a chord with me, whereby people talk about these things. But actually, what they ultimately are is essentially, in some respects, a status game, because there's actually no reason why you should say that running a TV campaign is better than running an AdWords campaign. There is there's no real difference between the both forms of advertising, the both media being bought, and everything else is just discussion at the edge. You know, I was just talking about media strategy and creating a little meme on, on Twitter uh, yesterday, which just caught on, which is pretty funny. It's that, you know, that wine meme that's been going around, someone getting served this wine and you're sort of like sniffing it and sipping it and enjoying it, you know, and the waiter. Anyway, I, I just sort of just did this thing around um, being presented this blended media plan, you know, I, the wine bottle, and then this person that has no idea about wine pretending it's really good. And what I've found with a lot of media campaigns is they you know, sprinkle in little elements and then sort of wrap a, a story around it and then sort of on sell it to someone who maybe isn't very discerning about how these things actually work. And I think, is this sort of status game or maybe clients buying into these different media based on status rather than anything else? Is that sort of distorting and creating some of these problems that maybe are showing themselves? Well, up yeah, yeah, yes and no. I mean, you know, we have to look into what it's like to be a senior marketing person or a marketing person buying this media. Um, mm. And I, I think this is the bit I really want to kind of dive into for, for a lot of people. And, and in fact, if there's any advertising people uh, listening to this podcast, um, I, I want to really, uh, are people who obsessed about brand and brand development. I think we should really look into the real world of what it's like to be a marketing director. Uh, in fact, I'm going to, uh, can I take a sidebar here uh, and go and say, when I'm looking on uh not just social media, but when I'm looking for sort of guidance and thinking and ideas, who do I really look for? Okay. And I actually look for people, you know, sort of a hierarchy, if will, and, you know, not necessarily at the top of that hierarchy, people who I look very closely are people who've been marketing directors or CMOs or whatever, because they kind of get it because they've had their feet held to the fire or their ass on the line, whatever particular uh, bodily metaphor you choose to use. And I kind of listen to them a lot more, even if they just only ever worked in one industry, but they kind of kind of get it. Okay. The second set of person I listen to uh, is people who've maybe developed, you know, it could be an e-commerce business or a business from scratch and then maybe sold it or whatever. Yeah, sure. There's a little bit of halo effect and what have you, but it's kind of, at least they kind of seen what's worked and they kind of are not that they've had skin in the game. The, the, uh, after that, much further down, I listen to people who have maybe who are advisors who've done that role before. Then below that are people who, um, and much further below that are people who work, and, and below sounds like a status thing again, but people who've worked in, you know, ad agencies and all the rest, because their, their advice is impeccable. They really know their stuff inside out and they bring an incredibly different rich view that I may not have. But the reality is it's only a small part of what we do. And so to go and say that the answers only come from um, an ad agency or strategy or, or, or worst or worse word of all, that it's all about creative, that's just not how it's kind of working. And, you know, just teasing that out a little bit more, you know, uh, one picture, well, most roles I have as a marketing director, they start off with you wake up in the morning, you go into the office, you open up the laptop, and there is the sales either from the previous day or the previous week, because the businesses I work with, the numbers come in and you can tell. Yeah? And one particular business, not only did the sales come in every hour, they also came in as a text every hour, 
24 hours, 360 days a year. And so you knew exactly what you were doing, whether it worked or not. And so you can, you know, people listening to this can maybe say, well, Colin's kind of like got a bad perspective on the world or the wrong perspective on the world because he's always had the numbers come in. Yeah, that's kind of like, that's it. So that's why I'm pretty hard ass on this whole idea of, because first of all, the numbers will come in and then you go and say, hmm, what's causing the problems with these numbers? If they're good or if they're great, you can go and say, oh, thank God for that. And then you have to look through a litany of things that you could do to address that. And one small item on that might be the advertising. One small item on that. But there's a whole set of other things that you can think about, which include distribution, which include the fact that the sales guy has been asleep for a couple of months, which include the fact that nobody can find the products in store, which include a whole host of other things, which include your, maybe you didn't hire the right person, which includes the, the fact that somebody's not there in the office and you're like, didn't get the email sent out. So there's a whole rake of things. But if you look at what happens on social media, you would think it's all advertising. It's all creative. And when a marketing director's hat on, it's a much smaller percentage. In fact, less than 10%, arguably 5%. And that's in a big company doing big stuff. In all other companies, it's much smaller. This came up last week. Uh, let's just say you're a company and you're doing this advertising and every year the sales is going down and you do this for 10 or 20 years. Would you call that advertising effort effective or not? I have specific experience of this because I worked for a company about 10 years ago uh, who are, they were involved in what's called directory inquiries business, which uh, in the UK and in fact in the five countries I was the marketing director for were incredibly well-known business. As in, if I mentioned the business, everybody would sing the, the the song that we had on the ad. So I think you had the Yellow Pages in Australia, same kind of thing. You know, these businesses are businesses that were ultimately on the way down. And what was our role in those businesses? Our role was to stop the rot, not necessarily make things go up or to stop the rot because nothing else could be done because the market was changing and so on. I actually got a bonus for stopping the rot in one of the markets. In the other market, I couldn't stop the rot. And so this is why I come back to what's the context. You can't really go and say, you know, uh, John did a terrible job in X. In my case, I actually got a bonus because I stopped the rot, in, as I say, in one market. But in other markets, we couldn't. And eventually they got tired of listening to me saying, there's only so much rot we can stop here. But the market is against us. And they brought another person who said, no, no, you can actually change the world and you can change consumer sentiment. So I think the campaign you're talking about is the uh, is the Australian lamb campaign um, for, from what I can re recollect by looking on social media or was it the got milk one? I can't remember. It, it, it doesn't matter. There are certain markets where essentially holding the line is actually a success. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, like you said, the context um, and also you're unaware of the political environment as well, I think, looking from afar. So in these conversations, you know, like you said, that could be your MO to, you know, <laughs> to stave off the pending doom in your market for as long as possible. I know the TV market in Australia, like media sales did that, um, you know, hiring influencers and things like that because they just knew the viewership was declining. So they wanted to maintain the sort of high price of media and, and did a pretty interesting um, campaign around there. So, um, yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, and like with that said, do you think that that diversity of the media mix um, sort of plays into that as well? Like which mediums you use more than others during different times or... Well, you know, a part of the thing I kind of always kind of scratch my head with is this kind of notion of like broad reach. Um, you know, in fact, I'll take a step back. We're, we're, we're all very familiar with the with these ideas of the laws of marketing effectiveness and so on, which are really fantastic. And they're really they're codified a lot of the things that, you know, senior marketers would have kind of had in their back of their mind, but couldn't kind of quite put, put their finger on once you had a couple of years experience. And they've, they've been, you know, really just uh, excellent in terms of getting everybody to knuckle down and see the world through a different lens. Um, I think the problem has been, uh, or the challenge has been really, is that many people take these as like um, the sort of um, the Libra d'Oro, as they would have in Venice back in the day, like the only way, the only things you can choose from and nothing else matters. And of course, 
it's the world isn't like that. The world is kind of messy and incentives are different and so on. But one of the kind of biggest kind of problems on this is this idea of broad reach. And it's the one where I hear people talking about broad reach and I just kind of scratch my head and go, broad reach media, what are you talking about? Because then it turns into this sort of slightly bizarre, uh, bizarre world of, you know, codifying uh, only one particular thing as being broad reach, which essentially is TV. And I'm like, right, okay, let me just kind of deconstruct that a bit more, okay? So if I'm talking broad reach, let me talk about the most broad reach media in the goddamn world, and it's Google and Facebook, because they're the largest platforms in the world and they literally reach everybody. So is that not broad reach? No, 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 that's not, Colin, you got it wrong. That's, that's actually performance marketing, that's not broad reach. Okay, so what is broad reach? Oh no, it's TV is broad reach. Right, okay, okay, so TV is broad reach. Now, let me just look. Um, what are we really talking about here? What are we optimizing for? What are you really referring to? Because I, I can name off the top of my head, I don't know, 10, 20 brands who've never been on television who are incredibly successful. Uh, I can name plenty of companies in, you know, direct to consumer e-commerce, which if you were the owner of those business and you took 10 or 20 million out of them, you would regard that as a success. Yeah. What is your cat definition of success? What is your, what are we talking about here? Let's get into the details. So as somebody who has bought TV and media in, in probably 10 countries, um, I kind of know a little bit about it. I've spent a lot of time kind of spending both my own money because I've invested in companies where we've used our own money and also actually other people's money when the companies I work for. And um, the one thing I can categorically state by a long shot is TV advertising is incredibly expensive because it's incredibly expensive because to get the reach you need is, 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 is causes a number of things that happen three to six months earlier. I've got to create a TV campaign. So to create a TV campaign that is of adequate quality, I can't go shoot it on my iPhone. I need professional editors, I need professional creative, I need to go to an agency. And that's not the work of 10 grand. That's the work of typically six figures. Okay, and then we start buying. Well then if you say I want to buy OnePlus and I want to reach this audience, which in the UK, um, if you want to buy OnePlus all, all, um, all, ad all adults, um, and you want to kind of span it out, it's, it's on ITV, plus you've got to do all these other stations. Now you're into the hundreds of thousands. Now let's look at Australia, another place where I bought TV. Um, if I buy TV, I can't buy a national buy. I've got to buy in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, uh, and, uh, and Perth. And then I've actually got to buy the country uh, equivalent TV channels as well. And I also might maybe have to edit my ad to make it work for those local markets. And suddenly I am into cost, cost, cost through the roof just to get these broad reach. Now, this is before I start talking about things like the advent of TikTok and so on. Now, it turns out that in my home country, Ireland, broad reach is actually a great statement to make. Yeah, because there's actually one TV channel that matters in terms of coverage and one radio program that matters in terms of coverage. In fact, there's one TV program that if you bought a TV ad on that and a radio ad on that, you kind of cover 10 to 20% of the population, but that will cost you, you know, a lot of money, <laughs> like a lot of money. So when people say broad reach, I'm like, what context? Because TikTok, Facebook and, you, and YouTube and, and Google are all broad reach, but buying on TV today, it ain't broad reach anymore because they're all on these other channels. And so it's become this kind of cult-like behavior where we say broad reach. And the reality is the people who we want to talk to who are doing things are not on these broad reach, purportedly broad reach channels. In fact, I was talking to Karen Nelson Field about this the other day. Um, and I was coming, Karen, maybe I'm naive, you know, maybe I'm just like, maybe I'm just like an idiot and I haven't, I'm, I'm missing something in the world. And she said, no, one of the kind of thinking, the sort of misleading thinking about broad reach is that it, it's, it's got a lack of understanding of the plumbing of the advertising world today, and particularly the plumbing of the digital advertising world, which by the way, it does show up in these bizarre kind of like contexts. Uh, 
So Tom Roach, who's one of like one of the sharpest brains, one of the smartest people, and incredibly uh, an incredible gent when you meet him as well, has to write an article in Marketing Week going that you know digital advertising can build brands, and you're like, wow, you know. The fact that Tom has to write this sort of thing shows how bizarre the discussion has become. Yep. But back to my point with Karen, and Karen was saying, you know, it's people don't understand the plumbing in the background of the digital advertising world. They don't understand what the likes of the trade desk do. They don't understand what's really going on behind the scenes. Just one of these kind of weird things. It's, it's a challenge now, just like me trying to get the microphone working for you earlier, working with us earlier. You've got to actually understand the technology before you can make these broad statements about what works and what doesn't work, particularly in 2024. Hmm. It's interesting. Um, I, I did hear that discussion, like uh, you can't build a brand with digital and digital to digital. Every time I speak to someone who says that, I... Um... <laughs> 100% of the time, they've never, ever used Google Ads, Facebook, Business Manager, ever. I can guarantee you. And if you ask them a very basic question about that, they won't be able to answer you. I, I think maybe some of that conjecture comes from when they've worked for very large brands and there's been a, a digital buy, but that digital buy has been like programmatic display. And then obviously they've just bought you know, probably junk inventory and they've seen no uplift because they've bought poorly from the beginning. And then that sort of gets a bad rap maybe because it's been bought badly. Like you said, they don't understand maybe the, uh, the ways of avoiding some of the cheaper inventory. You know what? Um, you know, back to let he's with it's in first zone, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I used to always have a laugh at myself. I would go, I would do what I call get religion. I would go, no, no, now we're going to, we're, we're going to buy digital display. This is what we're going to do. And, you know, I'd buy it across, maybe I'd be buying newspaper or I'd be buying radio or I'd be buying, uh, you know, Facebook, whatever the case is. And then our AdWords. And then I'd say, no, no, we'll do digital display now. And then a couple of months later, I'd be like, no, I'm so wrong. What am I? And, and the reason I was being an idiot was because I, I was assuming digital display was actually going to actually drive you know results straight away. We we needed direct response campaigns, and it didn't. And you know I was asking it to do the wrong thing, and I wasn't in the market. And also at the time, the buys weren't as good, and you know the, 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 a lot of the programmatic stuff was wasn't as strong as it could be. So you know, to be honest with you, I think it's kind of like a lot of us are. Um, we don't have what's, I think the phrase, if I correctly phrase it, is epistemic humility, which is that we go and say, um, thing, we don't go and look at what we do and what we choose to do with some level of humility based on the fact that we think we may or may not be wrong, but this is our best get, guess. And, and, and one of the things I encourage people to go and say is like, if you believe you're right all the time, well, and you make these black and white statements all the time. Like, I, I really don't believe you because I can point out 10 instances, you know, right now where I go and say, well, that's actually wrong. So let's just take, say, my friend, uh, Weimar Schneiders, who we have lots of discussions around uh, marketing effectiveness. And he's a fantastic person. He's got this incredible metaphor around the banana and so on. And which is like to explain how you need to develop uh, new customers, new customer acquisition, particularly through the longer tail and so on. But I've actually been working with a, a mattress company who are a family-owned business who turn over close to, uh, uh, what's the number? Close to about eight figures. So it's a family-run business. Wow. Been around for 40 years and uh, really good on innovation. Just spent a lot of money on um a factory upgrade and I was kind of reluctant to deal with them because I'm like I always reluctant to deal tricky to deal with owner operators but they're really fantastic people and I told them to focus actually on their top five customers now because their customers are the channel and the top five retailers control 97% of the market and for me not to do that and to say to get to focus on the the remaining well let's call it 5% would be detrimental to their business. And so they've only focused on that for the first couple of months. And now they, because of the kind of strength and kind of confidence they've got from kind of rebuilding those relationships and kind of, they've now actually gone and said, okay, now I can maybe go elsewhere and so on. And, you know, as Vimer will, will, will know, I mean, making these things completely black and white statements, which is what we, where we started out is, is detrimental to our, our professional, detrimental where we are. 
you know, I broke the rule of the banana, which is like, go for the long and, you know, go focus on customer acquisition. But the context was if they had done that, they would go bankrupt. Mm. If they do a brand broad reach campaign, they will go bankrupt. And, and so this is kind of, you know, back to that point, um, you know, the stuff that's in the likes of say how brands grow and whatever, all these books that we should read and really study, um, it's not directly applicable to say fast growth technology companies. You know, maybe the issue around creating assets and so on is, is, is a d distinctive assets, but in every st startup, because I said at the start, I deal with startups. What's the one thing I spend all the time with focus on positioning, focus on positioning. And in fact, tomorrow afternoon, I've got to deliver something for somebody and she's going, my positioning is unclear. And when I talk to people, they don't understand what I do. So in the software business, you've got to be have positioning because you're dealing with an abstraction. Yeah. It's not mm -hmm. like dealing with a thing that I can touch and feel in my hands. Yeah. So that's why when I hear rules, I'm like, mm, well, I can think of 10 reasons when that's not directly relevant and they're actually misleading and you'll make the company go bankrupt. I think there was another famous guy, Jason Lemkin uh, from Saster and a few other people. Um, they're having discussion around, oh, and Sam, Sam Altman as well. Okay, speaking of brands that have built themselves digitally using no other channels, <laughs> um, you know, ChatGPT is one of them. But um, he was saying... Um, you know, the, the key to a lot of, you know, startup growth is to go after a very niche, uh, smaller portion of the market, service them really well, and then expand out from there. You never go broad at the beginning because there's just too much risk involved in that. So like, you know, the path to successful startups is to start small with very defined reach and a very defined sort of set of customers, similar to your well, mattress example. Well, we've noticed for like 40, 50 years, because Jeffrey Moore has written the book called Crossing the Chasm. If you work in any form of software, in fact, if you worked outside of software, but you really should be studying the, you know, the, the, the original, the Bible of software development. In fact, there's two, there's a, obviously awesome by um, April Dunford and there's uh, Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. If you can know those two businesses, then you can really understand the world in a completely different way. There's a couple of things in Crossing the Chasm where he, uh, it, it's so clear, um, uh, you know, where when you read it, you go, well, this kind of completely is not what I'm reading when I read all this stuff around marketing effectiveness. Well, of course, the reason is it's a different industry and the context is different and the reality is different. You know, so back to this point, not everything is identical for fast moving consumer good brands in mature markets with mass distribution you should be applying that as much as possible. And even that is a bit arguable for reasons I'll explain later. But in all other contexts, you know, you've got to, you've got to narrow down your target. You know, if you read what's happening elsewhere, you'll people talk about targeting as bad. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Nobody has unlimited resources. I know. Nobody I has unlimited it. time. But You've got to target. You must target. You've got to position. If you don't believe that, I would suggest you go and take your own money out of the bank and set up your own business and see how you go. Because then you'll learn pretty quickly that I got a target. Now, the reason why um, the targeting thing is quite interesting is essentially everything that we deal with in the world, particularly new innovative technologies, they all started by targeting and they all started by targeting early adopters and you know the one that everybody talks about you know there's two, two brands that everybody talks about as kind of models for us all to follow one is apple one is tesla and um, they guess what they did um, um uh, they started out targeting a very small target of the market which was in the in the case of um the original Apple thing, which is these kind of hackers who like kind of put stuff together because the guys were pretty much selling it out of the back of their cars, more or less, or the back of their garage, you should say. Same thing as Hewlett Packard. And the original Tesla was a Lotus, because as everybody knows, I'm a complete car nutcase. And they took a Lotus Elise body and put a battery in it and could do 100 kilometers. And they were targeting it to um, very early adopters who like to kind of show off and have cars that and didn't mind that the car didn't really work. That's how all new technologies work. You start with a little kind of target market who don't care if the thing works. What we are talking about and what we hear on social media is actually about mature businesses 
where the growth factors are in plus or one or two percent. We're talking about a completely different world when it comes to technology. Hmm. And do you think um, we, we're sort of coming back to the four P's here as well? Like, um, you know, I don't know if anyone's listening, but like marketing used to be four P's. Um, there's a section where, um, you know, the promotional P sometimes and advertising within that gets an out disproportionate amount of attention and discourse, I think. But for me, um, you know, getting that, that mix of the product, the positioning of that product in the market, the right target market and after doing an analysis, all that kind of thing, like just that nuance of that, it's, you've got this complex system of variables that you're sort of like tweaking and trying to figure out like a little formula that works. And then you get it to work for one target market and then you have to adapt it for the next, you know, expansion into a, a bit of a large market. And, and that process from start to finish, it gets you know, very complex and very messy. And like, you know, the advertisers is one little sort of layer of the of the back end of maybe that more core process. So. I've had a, a definite backlash myself on social media when I go and say creativity is not relevant to a marketing director's role. And it's like as though I've said I've kind of robbed your firstborn and, you know, run off in a car with them or something, you know, obscene like that. Because, like, it's not really that relevant. If it was that relevant, we'd be sitting around, you know, thinking up creative things. You don't really. In fact, with the advent of digital advertising, you can actually be more creative, and that's that's actually why um, it's, it's it's you know. But reality is, the marketing director role is about two or three bits. One is it's about knowing the numbers. Particularly in my case, the roles I had, the numbers appeared, as I said earlier, every morning or every hour. So you have to know your numbers and and, and structure it. So the second thing about what it's a marketing director role is, it's about you know, obviously people management, particularly if you've got a team, which would take up maybe 10, 20% of your time. And then maybe the other 30, 40% of your time would be about managing upward. And that really is the art of persuasion. And uh, and that, that managing upwards and actually crosswords, you know, you might be dealing with store managers, you might be dealing with operations managers, might be dealing with manufacturing managers. And your role is about managing people upwards, crosswords, and aside, and understanding people dynamics, understanding status, understanding what you can say, what you can't say. And actually that then changes if it's an owner-operated business, a family-run business, an entrepreneurial business, a fast growth business, a quoted business, a non-quoted, all of those dynamics completely changed. Somewhere in your day, Maybe at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, between three and five past three, three, you might get to be creative. That's it. Hmm. Yeah. Other than that, you are kind of doing a role of all senior managers. In fact, one of the things that happens, uh, John, is people come to me and say, "Will you um, act as a coach to me?" I'm, I don't advertise it. You know, I don't have a broad reach TV campaign about my coaching facilities, <laughs> but a lot of people come to me and. Uh, ask me about it. And what I actually teach them is I'm assuming they know the technical aspects of the job. But I actually go and say straight up, it kind of doesn't matter if you don't know the technical aspects of the job. Like you don't have to be the best accountant to be the CFO. You don't have to be the best people manager to be the CEO. What you do know have to do is understand corporate dynamics, understand incentives, understand people and understand how to manage upwards. In other words, you've got to understand politics. You've got to be the marketing, marketing Machiavelli. And if you don't do any of those, no amount of knowing um, any technical aspect of marketing will get you anywhere. In fact, it will be completely irrelevant. Mm. And this is the thing that I talk about as well. Um, you know, these people talk about being more correct on this. And I'm like, well, you know, Market, uh, sorry, politics and like, um, you know, just the day to day management of the messiness of, of the operations is like 90 something percent of your job. So like, I'd be, I'd be talking about a bit more about that than anything else, um, to start with. But, um, it, it, sorry, the way, the way I frame it for you is there's a massive difference between marketing effectiveness and being an effective marketer. You can be an effective marketer without knowing anything about marketing effectiveness. And the proof point is, um, How Brands Grow was created as a book in 2011 and Les and, Fee and Peter Field started writing about it in 2006 and seven. And think about the many millions of brands that were created prior to those that never had that. Um, so it, it's not an absolute necessity for success. And indeed, um, probably the best marketer I know 
like in my career uh, of the hundreds and hundreds of people is uh, was a particular gentleman I know in Ireland and he he's done it in three different industries including B2B uh, in, including global firms including firms that every single person on this call will know but when I listen to him I'm like he doesn't care about channels he doesn't care about media he doesn't care about anything like that he sees himself as a change maker in an organization and essentially the role of a senior marketer is to bring a company from here to here that's the role from here to here it's not about media it's not about creative it's barely even about people management in the sense of like a, how I manage a team it's about understanding people and bringing people from here to here uh, in fact my last full-time CMO role I worked very closely with the CEO, CEO on our big change management program we did two things we did email and we did events and the rest of my time was spent how do we change um, the ethos of the organization how do we change the thinking around the organization to be more innovative and what programs can we do to go and do that and we increased our revenue from 16.7 million in 2016 to 29.4 million in 2019 with no changes other than the ones i just mentioned there so no emotional 60 second television commercial popped in there what that wasn't the key to growth well, it was B2B business. And, you know, <laughs> just to, to clarify that a bit more, all we did was target. <laughs> we only did, if we did anything, in fact, we didn't even do Google AdWords. We only did pure email. Uh, and we, I made sure the database went up to about 4,200 people. In fact, which leads me just as a kind of a minor rant here. I did say somebody on uh, social media today going uh, whinging on about email. And, uh, I kind of see it as a sort of email, as a sort of like, sort of sign. If I'm talking to you, John, and you say email doesn't work, I think I see that as a sign that you're a completely clueless marketer and who doesn't <laughs> understand anything. Yeah. And I see this all the time. Email doesn't work. AdWords doesn't work. Amazon advertising doesn't work. I'm like, hmm, okay, cool. I'm dealing with a person who doesn't understand anything about the world whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, or that channel's dead. I'm like, yeah, channels generally don't like, are alive one day and then dead the next day just because someone says, I'm like, some of them may decline, you know, slowly over time and lose audience, but they never like die. Well, again, it's all context dependent. If you mm -hmm. are on radio here in Ireland, you can really, like, you can, A, you can deliver reach at a very cost effective level, very low level. And you will get sales tomorrow because radio in Ireland is both national and super local. But radio is not the same, say, for instance, in the UK. It just doesn't deliver the same way. But radio in Australia can actually deliver for you, um, having bought radio. And radio in New Zealand can do the same thing as well. And so, again, it's all really dependent. It's really super dependent. It, it, this is why I, I, I just I cannot, I cannot understand when people start talking about these as these massive rules because it's, it's not the same. Like, say, for instance, um, you asked me earlier about retail media. And you go, well, Colin, you know, retail media, yeah. I, I, you will never hear me say the following. Retail media is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Everybody should do it, and it works in every market. I, I, I never, ever say that. It, it, I never say that at all, yeah? Um, and here's an example. So why doesn't it work in Italy? Or why doesn't it work in Ireland? Yeah? Or why doesn't it work as well say in Australia, well, it's pretty easy to work out. In Italy, people, gr grocery is mostly done in person because people, as they t will tell you, they want to see the produce. And so very little of the supermarket chains or grocery chains in the Italy actually sell stuff online because the local person is like, yeah, they got their fancy phones, they go to work, but they want to see the product. So it doesn't work quite as well there. Um, why does it not work in Ireland? Well, because there are no retail media chains large enough. Uh, it just hasn't happened. Yeah. Um, why does it not work in Australia as well? Well, because there's no Amazon. Yeah, they just opened up the new facility outside of Melbourne in Pakenham. And um, so it's the first time I've actually had a warehouse. And so the concept of Amazon advertising in Australia means absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, and there's only two grocery chains that kind of really matter. Um, and 
you know, everybody knows those. So again, even I, who, you know, earn a little bit of a living and I've got incentivized to go make outrageous claims, I don't because everything is context dependent within a market. And even say like a mega market like Germany, you can't make these massive claims. It just doesn't work like that. So what I would say to your listeners is never listen to anybody who makes one size fits all statements. Never listen to anybody who says this will work and so on. It's just the world isn't like that. We talk about uh, annoying creatives. Uh, I found one of the easiest ways to annoy them is to point out that, um, you know, you can build a brand not using an emotional 30 or 60 or 90 second television commercial. Like you can use rational arguments. So you can put that video on YouTube instead of TV. And I had this question actually at at SX uh, South by Southwest just last year um, out of the audience. And so I sent them a, a piece from Ken Roberts who has some really good, interesting papers on this and has written quite extensively about it. But where did the history of TV sort of ads come from in this sort of 90 or 60 or 30 second format? Because I I think, um, you know, it still dominates a lot of campaigns today. We see even the, you know, the the lamb ad that we were talking about before, like it's it's a central piece. It's like a three minute spot. And other sort of large advertising campaigns are generally formed around this like core 60, 90 second television commercial, uh, even to this day. Where did this come from? One thing I would say to your listeners is it's 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 always good to delve into the history of the thing that you're doing. Uh, I've been lucky enough to work with some incredible industries. Uh, I've worked in, you know, boring stuff like telco, but also travel, airlines, music and, and technology. And if you go back into the history of what they do, you, you can actually become a better marketer um, because you can then understand the context. And so one of the fun things I used to do when I was in OpenJaw Technologies was, was kind of tell them about the history of different advertising um, structures now uh, and if advertising kind of things. And people used to love it. But I, 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 the earliest ad I could find, and, and people can argue on this one, so I, I got no problem with this, it was the ad for the William Caxton Bible around 1415, 1450, 1473. Now, there was obviously signs outside stores before, which you could, could argue was advertising about as far back as, you know, Greek and Sumerian days. So if you take, say, um, that's when the first ad, then the next type of advertising that came was a couple of hundred years later, which was sort of newspaper advertising in, in a lot more depth and magazine advertising a lot more depth. And then around the kind of mid mid 1850s was really the dawn of um, direct marketing through the use of like Sears catalogs and so on. And then radio advertising came later. And ultimately in the late sort of mid to late 40s was, was, was television came. And we all uh, we all know one particular thing, but we kind of forget about the origin of it. And the idea is a soap opera, and a soap opera came from the fact that Procter and Gamble used to sponsor full TV programs, and a kind of nerd alert, trivia alert stuff that I absolutely adore is that um, a gentleman called Pat Weaver, who um, everybody knows here, but they don't realize they know it because he's the father of um, Sigourney Weaver of Aliens and various other in- incredible movies. Um, in the 80s and 90s, his uh, Pat Weaver um, had come in from uh, Young and Rubicum and he came into NBC and he looked at what was going on. And what happened was NBC would be selling the whole TV program, hence soap operas, and they would sell the whole program. And his insight was, well, I see if I buy a magazine, they're selling different pages in the magazine. So why don't we kind of going to sell slots within each section. And of course, NBC didn't want that. And because um, they're like, well, I, I've already got this existing thing, which is, um, you know, the one the, 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 the I can sell the whole TV program. Eventually, he, fa- he he introduced a program called Today, which is still around. And he was able to go and sell the slots within Today. You know, it's like in a magazine format where you're selling it through it. And then they found, NBC found out that was obviously a lot more lucrative. Um, <laughs> Now, the ultimate slot at the time was around, it was quite long, it was like around a minute. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years to the dawn of TV advertising in the UK. And as Paul Feldwick uh, wrote to me on this topic, um, who's written some incredible books that I really highly recommend you read, um, uh, Anatomy of Humbug and and so on. And uh, he, he pointed out, he said, well, the original thing was that ITV in the UK could sell 60 minutes. Uh, because that was the available slot that they could do it and make it work. 
And then they eventually said, well, actually, we'll narrow it down to 30 seconds because that's actually inventory we can sell. But it so happens that the, th the 30 second and 60 second are also kind of long enough for you to create a sort of story arc in that actually kind of helps people kind of get their head around what the story is and, and can do it compared to say five seconds or well, arguably 10 seconds that you can do in 10 seconds as well. And so these kind of ideas of how the 30 second commercial or the 60 second commercial are like carved in stone. No, it's actually just an origin thing from how Pat Weaver thought and actually how ITV were just slicing up their inventory. So it was just completely coincidental and a little bit of luck, and that's kind of where we are today. And of course, then the whole thing then becomes much more sort of convoluted, you know, 60, 70 years down the track, that this is the be all and end all where we, we build our careers around that. And yeah, it's, it's it turns out not to be like that at all. In fact, the biggest, there's a, f a thing used in, um, John, in, in, in investment, and it's called alpha, I think the word is, is where, you know, where the alpha is, where the kind of unique, where you can have an edge. It's kind of a, a sort of a, a, a symmetry, if you will. Mm. And, you know, you could argue that these newer channels like TikTok and what have you, they are examples or uh, they're examples of um, asymmetry or uh, arbitrage in action, whereby people think that the 32nd is where the way to go because that's what we believe but you can get a much lower cost and a much bigger reach by just thinking about the world through the lens of arbitrage and actually these new channels are arbitrage in action yeah it's interesting um and even TikTok, like i like was talking about legacy uh, TikToks, you know was built on that 60 second sort of video thing where a lot of other social media were using static or or text posts and then TikTok just came in and went let's create um, entertaining 60 second clips that people can scroll through and i'm just like i was thinking to myself as I was, you know, doom scrolling on TikTok, trying to figure out how, how does this thing work? I'm like, this is the new veg out in front of the TV and just sort of like watch ads and programs that just, you know, go through your psyche. And people are, oh, that's not effective. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, TV's been doing that for years. So like, it's the same thing. They mentioned about YouTube being, now, I, I, I'm plucking numbers out of my brain here, but it's like 40% of YouTube, maybe 50% of YouTube is watched on the big screen. And maybe it was Karen Nelson Field telling me this. And in fact, you know, I was like, hey, nodding my head and I'm going, hold on a second, that's me, you know, <laughs> where I'll go onto YouTube and I'll look at some obscure motor race and I'll have it on the screen. And I just like, like, you know, anecdotes are not evidence by a long shot. And, you know, one, you know, middle-aged man is not an evidence of the world, but I watch more linear TV than I'd say anybody who's 21. Anybody who's 21, like my nieces and nephews, they wouldn't even know what linear TV was and bit them on the ass. So I just can't kind of work all this out. Like where you've got all this evidence around the globe of like people glued to their phones and you're like, and poor Tom Roach has to write an article going, you know, you can develop brands on digital. I'm like, what are we smoking here? <laughs> okay, with, with, that, with that trip down memory lane and a bit more understanding of the, the history of where these things come from, where do, you, where do you think it's going? Like you said, you're working for technology. Um, you know, if you listen to people like Andreessen, you know, software is eating the world. I would say that AI is now eating software. Um, but, you know, there, there are new channels, new people talking about, oh, you should put your money here or there. Like, um, you know, what will stay the same and what, what won't? The things that obviously it's going to say the same is that human nature uh, hasn't changed and we'll still be, you know, driven by all sorts of um, emotion, emotions. And, you know, I, I am the example of that where I will spend far too much of my waking time thinking about things that are completely irrelevant, like motorsport, cars, and, you know, careers and think, you know, just kind of like it's all ideas in my head. Yeah, it's nothing to do with reality. We're all involved, we're all stuck in our heads the whole time. And we're involved in things that are emotional and, and so on. So human nature is not going to change. That's that's about it. Um, but it's a very interesting book by uh, Kevin Kelly, which is behind me here um, a few years ago called The Inevitable. And it's kind of like one of the things I would say to any marketers or advertising types leading to this is that there's a certain set of inevitable things that are going to happen that are kind of inevitable and us talking about the world through looking through the rearview mirror, which is kind of a lot of the conversation, it doesn't help anybody. And and, and one of the points he talks about, you know, apropos what you just said there, John, which is that um, 
you know, AI is, is, is inevitable. It's just going to happen. All these conversations around like how it's bad, good or indifferent, it doesn't matter. It's all irrelevant. It's going to happen. It is happening. In fact, again, one of my other sidebars, um, another, um, way I can assess your, not the smartest marketing or advertising person in the world is aside from the fact you say email doesn't work or, you know, any of these other things, if you say AI is not, AI is not relevant and AI is, AI is not coming for me, then I'm like, hmm, okay, it's definitely coming for you or it doesn't work. Um, there's a lot of people going on ChatGPT does all these stupid things and I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand exponential technologies then because, you know, one of the things I do in one of my classes, I, I bring up, uh, uh, my, my wife has a, an original iPhone, like one of the ones from 2008. And when, when, when she showed it to me, I was like, that's a load of rubbish. Look at my beautiful Blackberry Pearl. Look at that. It's got buttons. How do I phone anybody? This thing doesn't work, you know? And I was just like, yeah, yeah. Like fast forward a couple of years later and I get an iPhone four and I'm like, oh my God, look at this thing. It's perfect. Blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, I'm an idiot. I didn't kind of tune into the fact that exponential technologies means that the, you know, the power of a silicon chip is increasing every 18 months at a much lower price parity rate. And once we understand the world through the lens of exponential, where things are going to get dematerialized and demonetized, then you can go and say, hmm, it's crap now, but it's going to be amazing later. So me looking at the Tesla in 2009, when it was a, basically a Lotus Elise with a battery going 90 kilometers at a stretch in terms of distance compared to what's going to happen now. So what's happening is we're looking at the world through this lens of where we came from, or we've got to work the world lens of where we're going to. And like, again, if you're not using ChatGPT and you haven't signed up for the subscription for $20 a month, you're a complete idiot, as we say in Ireland, like you're just, you're, you're, you're lacking in any form of common sense because uh, even small things like, you know, I, I had to do something for a company the other day and, you know, I had brain fade. I was like, oh, man, I can't think. Of it. So I put it into it and I was like, oh, yeah, of course, that thing. That, if I hadn't had it, I would have probably spent four hours crying into a metaphorical pint trying to work out what to do. Instead, I got an answer in 30 seconds when, oh, that's kind of how it is. And in this case, I was actually trying to come up with titles, headlines, and trying to create a course, and I couldn't crack it. And so essentially, I've got a new brain. And who doesn't want a new brain to, to, to help you? But we're only, what, 15 months into ChatGPT, and this is before all the other ones kind of come through. So this is the equivalent. Anybody who says ChatGPT or AI is stupid is the equivalent of me talking to my wife in 2008 and saying, that Apple iPhone will never catch on because look at my amazing Blackberry Pearl. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, like ChatGPT is just like, it's just like having a couple of employees, just like your little lackeys doing research, you give them any sort of, I call them task like he's just go and do this thing and, and bang, it comes back, but it's $20 a month. <laughs> that's why I say make friends with a techie person, understand what the technology can do, because that's where the alpha is. Like, I can't really like recommend that hardly or strong enough because you have to understand how technology works. Because back to Kevin Kelly, if you don't understand technology works, you can't do the inevitable. I've got to work out how these things work and go through the sort of like the slight kind of pain in the ass of having to work it out because once you understand it you go right i can see how things are going to pan out very quickly because the speed of these windows opening is is much faster in fact let's use this as an uh, 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 as an example we saw the whole crypto hype and the crypto hype went up very fast and down very fast the whole nft hype went up very fast and down nf very fast and rather than go and say, well, that was all rubbish and people were doing this, it arguably all of those the better kind of idea is to go and say, hmm, actually, what's going to happen is things are going to be adopted super fast through the use of memes. In fact, I'll go even further. Rather than being cynical about NFTs and crypto, a good marketer will go and say, what actually happened here? And what they did was use social media memes ideas and thoughts to create hype to uh, yeah obviously pump up valuation of something that arguably doesn't need that valuation but it's kind of happening actually outside of crypto people are using this idea elsewhere and hence chap gpt goes from nothing 
to using one channel, which is PR, digital PR, and Sam Altman. And that's it. That's it. It becomes the biggest brand in the world. That's it. Everybody knows it everywhere in the world. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, No TV ad. Um, On that note, um, you have mentioned a couple of books throughout our discussion now. Are there any that you're reading now, have read that you'd definitely recommend people read? Well, uh, I have a, a couple of ones. So we, we did talk about uh, the history of advertising and what have you. As you can see from behind here, I actually do recommend people buy actual <laughs> physical books. Uh, I also have a Kindle, but I use a Kindle for traveling. You need the real physical book and you should go over these physical books. And you, anybody who's a, you know, a person worth their salt in marketing has to have at least Ogilvy in advertising or positioning by recent trend. You've got to look at the original kind of stuff. When it comes to actually being a marketer and operating in the world, regardless of your kind of where you are in the totem pole or hierarchy, the, the books that I found most interesting, um, and some of them are 15, 20 years old, was uh, anything by Jeffrey Pfeffer, who is a Harvard uh, professor. He's written um, a book called Hard Facts, Dangerous Half Truth, and Total Nonsense. And part of the reason why I really liked reading that originally back in the day was that all these things that I was led to believe, for instance, one where you whack off the bottom 10% of the staff every year and you, you know, the data says you, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, because it basically says it's the worst thing in the world. He also has a book called Power, which is really every mistake you make as a senior person is in that book. And tied in with that is uh, Phil Rosenweig's uh, Halo, um, Halo Effect, which is really makes sure that you don't go and buy into anything, including me and what I say, you go and go and say, well, why am I doing this? Because it's, it's, it's a halo effect. I also think you should have a look at that, the inevitable Kevin Kelly, um, which I think is very useful. Um, there's a whole host of stuff, but there are ones off the top of my head. I, I, I think you should read the classics um, back in the day stuff like scientific advertising stuff. I highly recommend everybody here reads stuff around direct response. You know, David Oldby is a big fan of that. Um, I love direct response advertising. Um, having invested my own money and run my own firms, you very quickly start loving direct response. Yeah, so anybody who works in marketing advertising has to understand direct response. Um, I'm a hack as a copywriter. Um, I'm not a, you know, I'm not one of these people who can do incredible copywriting, but you should be able to copyright because you can't go and work out what's going on unless you understand copywriting. So any good copywriting book, I have a few here. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I've got Anne Hadley's Everybody Writes here. There's one that uh, Vicky Ross recommended. Um, it's on my desk, actually right next to me. <clears throat> I haven't read it yet, but um, I'll get around to right. it. But I think also just practicing copywriting, absorbing other people's good good writing. Um, I think it just vicariously sort of trains your brain and then you sort of pick up phrases and then you sort of meld it into your own style. Yeah. And it's, um, it's very interesting. Well, it's true. There's, there's another thing in copywriting which... Um, as I said to you earlier on, one of the things that people come to me is on coaching. And I'm sure, you know, in my mind, it's they come to me because of my incredible good looks and charm. But in reality, they've got a problem to solve. And a lot of the problems they want to solve um, as a marketing person is they're not getting through internally. And it's typically a combination of they don't have the right words and they're not persuasive. I mean, these are the the killer, the killer apps for a marketing director is to be very persuasive and be able to use the right language and just ultimately understand persuasion. Why you obviously you should be reading Robert Cialdini's you know, Psychology of Influence and all the behavioral science stuff. You know, don't care what people say. People say, "Oh, behavioral science, good, bad, and doesn't matter." Go read all the stuff and make your own mind up and read Rory Sutherland's books and really tune into this idea. Um, but the the uh, the bit that the, 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 the combination of being able to write and use language and copywriting, it all kind of melds together um, because that then makes you more persuasive. And we, we all know that the people who reach the top of their career are ultimately persuaders. They're ultimately, uh, you know, uh, as Vance Parker's books, they're ultimately hidden persuaders. And it's, it's, it's as you get higher in your career, your capabilities less matter than your ability to persuade. Mm. Um, and yes, on that note, I always say, um, you know, some people say, oh, we did this and then we now we're going to invest in marketing and sales. I'm like, no, you should always be marketing and always be selling. 
constantly never stop uh, throughout your career. And I think the same is, is, is true yeah, for your yeah, career. People who, run their own, people who run their own businesses know that. Um, but it's tricky, you know, family-run businesses. <laughs> that, that the bad company I was talking about earlier, they're like, Colin, we now need to do marketing and sales because we've just invested in this factory. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, it's fine. It's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's just about, you know, where companies are in their stage of development. Now, in this case, they're 40 years in and they're kind of going, maybe I need some marketing and sales. So it is what it is. It's over to you now. Like, uh, tell us about a bit more about you. What do you, what are you selling? Uh, speaking about selling, um, if someone went, oh, I'm listening to this. Colin sounds like a good guy. What do you actually offer people? Well, I do three things. If you're working in a startup and you want to know how to position and go to market, that's what people come to me for. A lot of people come to me for coaching advice on how to become a variation of better marketer. That's that's a lot. Like we're talking like double figures over the last um, 18 months or so. Uh, I work with brands on, on their sort of digital commerce and uh, ultimately that bleeds over into marketing effectiveness discussions, distribution discussions and what have you. And also retailers um, to help them set up their retail media networks. I'm currently working with retailers in Australia, New Zealand, Turkey, um, UK, maybe hopefully in Ireland as well on how to set up a retail media network. I do that in tandem with other people because it's very technical and quite hard to do. And the other thing I do is a lot of writing, like a lot of writing. And uh, some people come to me to write best practice stuff. So I've done a lot of work for Wark and obviously Marketing Week as a columnist and so on. And uh, yeah, I, uh, back to the writing. I highly recommend you learn how to write because through writing is how you learn how to think. And if you came to me 15 years ago and said, Colin, you would be writing well, as I have done in the last two years, maybe 300,000 words, I would have laughed at you. But that's actually how I kind of vaguely have some well-formed ideas. It's because I can write. Yeah, and sometimes the process of writing, I find is like better than regardless of how good the writing actually is at the end is is like the process is is the learning opportunity sometimes like organizing thoughts putting them into a page into a structure like that in itself is so so critical um speaking of that uh, yeah. what about yeah, and you hear people you hear people talk about that job right you hear people talk about that going oh no i need to get my ideas down by writing and i used to laugh at that i'm like no that it turns out that is the only way to do it and that's why i admire the work that you've done uh, for better or for worse writing all that stuff around brand building because it forced you to create these cohesive list of ideas and, and, and make them work. It's, it's very, very hard to do, like really hard to do. Hmm. Yeah, structure it all. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, and speaking of that, if someone wants to get in contact with you, uh, preferred method, I'm guessing it's not Google Docs. Yeah, uh, 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 nothing like that. You can touch me on LinkedIn. It's actually quite easy to find me. Just find me on Colin Lewis. Uh, or you can find me on, um, on Twitter. Uh, Colin A. Lewis. That's my middle initial. So Colin Lewis with an A. Or you can just email me. Um, I'm, I'm all for emails. Uh, Colin A. Lewis at gmail.com is my personal address. So I always look at that. Colin A. Lewis at gmail.com. But if I'm being smart ass, I'll go and say you can phone me on 1-800-COLIN for you. But nobody ever phones me on that. <laughs> or maybe visit your MySpace page or something, a Tumblr blog. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like page, my MySpace page. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, thanks very much for being on the show. Really appreciate Colin. And I'm sure we'll talk soon anyway. But uh, thanks again. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for your time, John. Thanks very much for inviting me on the show.